love thy neighborhood. Okay. Oh, cool. Oh, definitely. <laughs> awesome. Discipleship and missions. Mission. For, For modern, modern times. If your relational longings are unmet, and everyone's are to some degree, you are going to be very inclined to distance yourself or numb or in some way escape the portion of your brain that longs for your relationship with your father to be better. This is a show about self-discovery. About understanding ourselves about looking into the mirror to see the good, the bad, and the unknown of who we are. This is about how we relate to God and everyone else. From Love That Neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome. 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 To the Enneacast. Hey, welcome to the Enneacast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Lindsay Lewis. Every episode, we walk you through the Enneagram, and we help you build better relationships. And today, we're continuing our series on the nine desires. If you haven't already, go back, listen to episode 85 with Dr. Kurt Thompson, where we laid a foundation around exploring our desire. In this series, we have started every episode with these two foundational ideas. Number one, God created humans to desire. And number two, our desires are drawn toward what we find beautiful. So in today's episode, we are actually going to focus on the desire to protect yourself. This has also sometimes been identified as a desire for control. Some people say it's a desire for independence. But fundamentally, we're, we're going to talk a lot about it from the perspective of I want to be able to defend myself. When things are going down in the world, I want to be able to stand my ground and do something about it. Right. So this desire to protect yourself is closely tied to a desire for justice and for a, a desire for freedom. So I'm searching for a way of life where I can live by my own convictions, where I'm not controlled by others, and I'm able to protect myself and those I care about. Mm -hmm. It lives with a general sense of that there are things in the world that just, you know, are not right. Things go wrong. People abuse other people. And I want to have the ability to do something about that. Um, So if you find this to be one of your driving desires, you might be a type 8. So if it is really, I mean, it's acute, you might be a type 8 or... You might just be a member of the gut triad. Right. So when it comes to the desire to be protective, we have three paths that we can take. So we're going to take a look at when it's exaggerated, when it's diminished, and when it's healthy. So first, let's take a look at what happens when this desire to protect yourself, it just gets supercharged. It it has become really big. It's kind of in every conversation, every situation you go into, Mm -hmm. you feel it in your body. You're always on guard. You got to protect yourself at all costs. What is going on (laughs) in the atomic bomb that is going on in these situations? Well, when the desire is distorted, we take our desire to protect ourselves and we settle for being domineering, controlling, or just powerful. And on top of that, we're in denial about it. Mm -hmm. Like We're like, I'm not doing that. I'm Mm -hmm. just 
being myself. Well, the good, the best defense is a good offense, you know? <laughs> exactly. So we're going to sacrifice our own tenderness, our closeness with others in order to stay in a strong position. That's our defense. And when we're in an overly controlling stance, we begin to live in a way that is boundless, a lack of boundaries fueled by an addiction to intensity and excess. In this place, anger and vengeance can grow. Yeah, there really is a sense in which when we give ourselves over to this Mm -hmm. desire, we're like, all of this junk's going on around me and I'm going to put my fists up and I'm going to swing as as I need to. And it's up to me to defend myself, but it's also up to you. You need to stand your ground as well. When that stuff just kind of starts to spin out of control, we do. We lose all sense of boundaries. We don't understand you know, all the room we're taking up, you know, we don't understand when we're bulldozing over other people. It's just all this sort of energy. And that sensation, that sensation of uh, of intensity, it can be really intoxicating. Um, even anger can be really energizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we have to be careful about how we wield this. And the number one complaint, if, if this is a supercharged thing in your life, I'm going to tell you something right now <laughs> that many people in your life have probably told you. You don't listen. Mm-hmm. That is the number one symptom that the people around you suffer is that they feel unheard by you because you become blinded by your energy and by your need to do what you feel that you need to do regardless of what is going on around you. Right. I'm just like picturing this little kid like king of the hill you know that game that you play where you're like get on top of whatever mound of things and then you've got this flag that's like come and take it you know mm-hmm. and then as people are trying to come up the hill you're just like kicking them down mm-hmm. you know you don't even hear what they have to say or see the look of pain in their eyes you're just mm-hmm. like not today mm-hmm. not today like if you can match me if you can come and take it then i can yes listen and again this is the exaggerated stance yes not all aids are like this every moment of the day but yeah, they, they become deaf because they're up so high, they're so protected. Because mm-hmm. there's a real sense of um, I'm surrounded by threats all the time. Yes. And so and it's sort of like they can't switch it off. You know, this is a not maybe the most helpful analogy, but you'll see some version of this sometimes even when like politicians run. Mm. You know, they're kind of they're out there. They're really fighting for their cause, their campaign. Then they actually get into office and they still won't top, stop taking swings at everybody oh, because yeah. it it becomes their sort of natural way of being is I'm going to fight all the time, even when I've already won. I'm mm-hmm. still fighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when we talk about an exaggerated desire, we need to consider the role of grief and trauma in our story. Yeah. Those of us who long to be protective, to protect ourselves, to be independent, we may have experienced themes of survival themes of conflict. Mm -hmm. You may have come from a background where fighting was a normal thing. You had to stand your ground. You had to be bigger than you actually were as a child Mm -hmm. because the threats were bigger than you should have had to have dealt with. Um, Whether that is physical threats, whether that was illness, whether that is another family member being abused. And it communicated at some level this idea that it's not okay to be vulnerable or to trust others. Because if you're vulnerable, if you trust others, that is like a that's like a crack in the wall, mm-hmm. and somebody is going to you know exploit that and make mm-hmm. their way into the fortress, and they're going to hurt the people that you care about. They're going right. to hurt you. So there's a sense in which you felt 
I can't be vulnerable. I need to hold my cards extremely close. And in fact, I'm going to hold them so close, I'm going to actually say they don't even exist. Yeah. Um, if there are things that I don't want people to know, I just will them out of existence. Yeah. Um, I think this is so key. I mean, we talk about the wounds and the messages for each type, but for the AIDS, maybe it's just me personally, because I can have a really hard time if someone is in that exaggerated eight space and it feels really aggressive, you know, and really domineering. And I'm kind of like, you know, what's happening? Like, why are you not being nice to me? And when I read this early on, you know, in learning the Enneagram, it felt like such a key, mm-hmm. like not mm-hmm. to take advantage or in wield that against the eight, but to have that little seed of understanding for those of us who are not eights, who do not have a lot of this desire to know that this is coming from a really felt need, yeah. from a wound and just like we have wounds, they're doing the best they can with what they have been handed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it served them well yeah. when they were younger. You know, yeah. I do. I know a lot of eights that were very sick as children, right. you know, life-threatening diseases. Their kind of eightness probably really helped them actually survive those yeah. situations. The problem is that now that they're adults, they don't need that same right. degree of, of energy. It's not serving them anymore but they also don't know another way to be. Right. So it becomes, you know, a situation where the more that you are scared that you're not going to be able to protect yourself, the more that you're scared that someone's going to overpower you, the more that you're scared that somebody is going to attempt to assert themselves over you, you're going to exaggerate your need for power, your need for control, uh, your need to protect yourself. You're going to end up overcompensating for whatever it is that you think that you lack. So if you're living with this regular fear that others are trying to control you, that they want to make you feel weak or vulnerable, that you'll be taken advantage of, here is a question to ask. What happened in my youth where I felt the need to survive or that my trust and innocence were taken advantage of? And what is one small step I can take today to acknowledge this wound and begin to do the work of letting this wound heal. Because, as we've said, what goes unhealed eventually goes septic. When we refuse to acknowledge it, we refuse to let God heal it. And so, again, we are not at all saying that the desire to protect yourself is a bad desire. We're not saying that the desire to be protective is a Mm -hmm. bad desire. What we're saying is that when you make it ultimate, it becomes a problem. It cannot be the ultimate desire of your life, and we have to all go on a journey to put it back in its proper place. Mm -hmm. So that's what happens when it's exaggerated. Let's talk a little bit about what happens when this desire to protect yourself is diminished. You're like, like, anybody can punch me. I don't particularly care. Anybody can manipulate me. I'm Mm -hmm. not going to do anything about it. I'm just so nice. I'm just, (laughs) I just want to be a very nice person. Um, What, what is going on here? Right. The rule that we're keeping in mind is that when any desire becomes exaggerated, it demands that all the other desires either serve it or be slain by it. So you can either help it become even bigger or you can go away. So if you are, you know, you're listening to this and you're just going like, I hate fighting. Mm -hmm. I I hate fighting. I don't want to fight. I don't want to have to confront other people. Mm -hmm. I don't want to have to assert myself because I'm afraid that, you know, what... Ask yourself, what's going on? What is the desire that feels threatened? You know, is it 
that you feel like I'm not going to be loved if I confront people? Right. Is it that you feel like all your peace and tranquility are out the window? Mm-hmm. Do you feel like who cares? You know, let these emotional fools, you know, eat yeah. each other alive. I got other things to do. Right. But at some level, if you have no willingness to defend yourself, even when it is really, truly appropriate, and you also don't have a, a willingness to defend the people that you love. Yeah. Um, if you're not willing to engage in conflict, ask yourself what other competing desire feels threatened by this one. That's right. Okay. Well, finally, let's talk about what the desire to be protective looks like when it's healthy. And the way we're going to look at this is through the lens of the chief desires that Jesus gave us, which is the desire to love God and love other people as we love ourselves. So when the desire to be protective and to be independent, when it's healthy, it shows up as our true self in Christ. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is going to look like controlled strength. I Mm -hmm. think of it this way. It is the difference between a raging river that is just kind of, it's overflowed, Mm -hmm. it's tearing everything up as it goes, it's making its way up into the land, it's swallowing up homes versus a dam. Mm -hmm. A dam is the river comes to the dam and then the dam lets the appropriate amount of water through and it Mm -hmm. harnesses that energy in a controlled way. Mm -hmm. That is what a picture of healthy strength, of healthy protection, what that looks like. Um, It's not out of control, but it's wielded. It's a dedication to pursuing justice, Mm -hmm. to confronting evil, uh, to being direct and straight about those things, but not doing it in a way that is vindictive, in a way that seeks to obliterate and destroy the person Mm -hmm. or people on the other end. It's not just about winning the argument, but it's about contending for what is good. You're able to give and to receive mercy, and that takes vulnerability. Yeah. Because that means I'm showing up and I'm going, I sinned. I made a mistake. I did this thing was wrong. Will you forgive me? Mm-hmm. It's a willingness to to let your guard down and trust that the other person is not going to take advantage of you. And that begins with your own ability to see yourself accurately. Right. And and so you have to let go of that temptation to deny that something is, oh, it's not a problem for me, so it must not be a problem. If everybody around you, people that you love, they're telling you it's a problem, a healthy desire to be protective allows those people's voices to make their way in. Right. So as we're walking with Christ in this true self, we're able to receive not only forgiveness, but the truth that he is the one who will never betray us. That despite our surroundings, despite if other people do, you know, abuse our trust and are not um, careful with our own innocence, that Christ is always the one directing our story and that he has this final victory. And when we're confident in our safety in Christ and submit ourselves to his control, we can practice innocence, which is being vulnerable and trusting with outcomes, which produces the fruit of tenderness. Yeah, yeah. And and here's the deal. You know, I've got a lot of this in me. I, you know, my mm-hmm. childhood story is one in which I had to contend for myself a lot. Mm-hmm. It was necessary. The side effect, though, is that many of us, we have to let go of innocence too early in life. Right. We have to give up our childhood innocence because we have to we have to brawl. We have to kind of yeah, stand our ground. And the side effect, though, is that all these good things that come out of innocence, you know, 
the ability to be merciful, the ability to be trusting, the ability uh, to be tender with other people. The way to cultivate those things is we have to go back and we have to ask God to let that innocence reemerge. And you see this a lot with a lot of folks that are kind of have this sort of uh, strong disposition. Mm -hmm. You get them around kids, you get them around puppies, you get them around and they tap into that innocent childlike part of themselves. And the invitation here is if you really want to pursue a desire to be protective, to protect yourself, to protect the people that you love, it also has to be done with innocence. Those things do not need to be in combat with each other, but there needs to be a sense in which you are capable of holding those things together. So it's, you know, it's that picture of that we must become like little children because little children will inherit the kingdom. There's an invitation from Christ for us to Mm re-engage that innocent child that we had to give up way too early in life. And by doing that and letting that re-emerge, we will find we don't actually have to keep our fists up all the time anymore. So those are our notes on the desire to be protective and to protect yourself. But we want to hear from somebody who identifies this desire as a driving force in their personality. So today we have with us Adam Young. Adam is a licensed clinical social worker and has master degrees in social work and divinity. He currently serves as a fellow with the Allender Center and is the host of the Place We Find Ourselves podcast. His recent work includes workshops on family of origin, sexual attachment, and helping others engage people's life stories in healthy ways. He's been married to his wife for 24 years. They and their two children live in Fort Collins, Colorado. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah, we are so excited to talk with you. Uh, We both have just benefited so much from your work. And, you know, if you're listening to this right now and you have not checked out the place we find ourselves, don't stop listening to this and go do it. (laughs) But when you're done with this, head over there and and go check that out. Adam, maybe we could start here. You know, in Enneagram theory, the core desire for the type 8 is to be independent. Other people say to protect themselves or to not be controlled. Why is this desire important to you? And did something happen in your life that made this desire important? Uh, those are great questions. I don't know the answers to them. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think eights are alone in the desire to not be controlled. I think of my eightness maybe more along the lines of uh, I don't want to be betrayed. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And the protective instinct, I think, comes from a hypervigilance of scanning the horizon, looking for betrayal. And, you know, eights have different stories. And so if your story has betrayal in it and you are an Enneagram eight, that's kind of a double whammy because Mm -hmm. you're going to have all the more drive and energy for that hypervigilance of looking out for who is going to turn on you. So I don't resonate so much with the um, I don't want to be controlled, especially as an almost 50 year old. I mean, Mm. maybe in my early 30s, but, you know, like a la Richard Rohr, like the more you grow in Christ, the more you hold your hands more loosely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you're an eight. 
<laughs> right. Yes. Right. And how much of do you think that that focus on a concern over betrayal, how much of that is, you know, some nature stuff? How much of that is nurture and the life experiences that you've lived through? You know, for you, that focus on is this person going to betray me or not? How much of that is coming out of your story? As far as the nature nurture, I am not an expert on the Enneagram. My leaning with the reading I've done is that is that your type is uh, is not nature. It's um, it's developed based on your story sometime by the age of I don't know eighteen to twenty five. Mm-hmm. But I, I you know again I could I have no problem being dead wrong about that. Yeah. That's my sense for for me and for the people that I've talked to is that our types grow out of our stories. Um, and yeah, I had a considerable amount of not just betrayal, but I would say here's the key word, powerlessness as a boy, mm. both in my family of origin, but also in school, um, being mocked and ridiculed and made fun of. And so the powerlessness that you endure in your formative years, your growing up years, profoundly shapes what we call your personality. And I would say it profoundly shapes your Enneagram type. Yeah, for sure, for sure. We had Kurt Thompson on the show recently, and one of the things that he was talking with us a little bit about was this idea of that the two ingredients that go into trauma, you know, are essentially, I feel overwhelmed and I feel powerless Mm -hmm. to do anything about it. And one of the things I've been thinking on is how much of this stuff that tends to drive us as adults is really often the thing that we really felt that we lost in our childhood, that Mm -hmm. it was taken from us in some way. Or you were just missing it. Yeah. I mean, my working definition of trauma is that it is, yes, I would agree with the word overwhelm, but it is powerlessness combined with abandonment by potentially protective caregivers. Mm -hmm. That second part is absolutely critical. In other words, you can endure as a child or as an adult, a really harsh, I'm not using the word traumatic on purpose, a really harsh event, like a car crash or a natural disaster um, or, or, or abuse of some sort, sexual assault. And if you are able to run home, as it were, and home doesn't have to be your parents, but to a village, to a community of people who love you, care for you, touch you, soothe you, help you tell the story of what happened, help your body shake and go through the motions of what it needs to, rage, and then engage the trauma itself, the harsh event, you will not be traumatized. Mm, That's really good. With our desires, we've talked about the importance of naming our desires. And, you know, we see that some people are really good at naming their desires and others it's a struggle, you know, that they want to ignore their desires altogether. They're afraid right. of bad outcomes. So do you find it comfortable to acknowledge and name your desires? And I'm also curious if you can give us a little bit of um, a life arc on that. You know, when you were younger, yeah. how yeah. was that? And then, like you said, now that you're you're much more mature, you've gone through a lot of doing a lot of your own work. Now, what does that look like for you? Yes. Oh, that's a great question. That's a great, nobody has ever asked me that. So (laughs) yes, your relationship to your longings evolves. Mm. Hopefully. I mean, some people live a life hating and numbing 
and avoiding their longings because it's too painful to get close, frankly, to those portions of the brain where relational, especially longing resides. The core of our longings are relational. So I have, I have non-relational longings, like I love going skiing and I even love skiing by myself. Mm -hmm. But if I ski by myself for, you know, more than a day or two, it's all relational longing that fills in the, the back end of that gap. I mean, ultimately we have longings for other relationships, for people and for God. And so as a boy or a girl, if your relational longings are unmet, and everyone's are to some degree, you are going to be very inclined to distance yourself or numb or in some way escape the portion of your brain that longs for your relationship with your father to be better. Mm. And that becomes, those choices become your personality. Uh, what Dan Allender calls your relational style, the way you show up in the world, the way you yeah. do relationships. And so, you know, I mean, all of us know that ambivalent feeling of wanting more closeness to somebody and at the same time feeling uncomfortable with it. Yeah. That's ambivalence. And in some ways, growth and maturation is how you manage your ambivalence uh, with the relationships that are most important to you as you grow. So then, so for you, you know, within your disposition, your relational style, you know, do you find it challenging to name your desires as that become easier or that, or that continues to be a struggle? No, much easier. Oh, no, no. I am much, much more comfortable with my longings. Now, now, now when I say comfortable, I mean comfortable identifying them and naming them. Mm -hmm. I'm, <laughs> I still ache as much as the next person at the unfulfilled longings. I mean, that ache doesn't go away. But whereas as a 30-year-old, I wasn't aware of or I would have been way too afraid to name, mm -hmm. I want a closer relationship with you, person, whoever you are, spouse, mm -hmm. friend, mentor, uh, son, father, my mother, whoever mm -hmm. it is, my uncle. I want more from our relationship. I could not have named that as a 30 year old. It would have been too scary. Um, mm -hmm. Now I'm very, very comfortable naming that, identifying that, and even in lots of cases, saying it to the other person. However, if it's not reciprocated, the ache is still there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Relationships are one of those things where you know nothing's more risky and nothing's more mm -hmm. essential. Mm -hmm. And so it's terrifying for us to take that leap and go, okay, I'm going to put my wants and my needs in front of this other person, but they have the absolute ability to neglect them, misuse them, abuse them. You know, uh, you know, Adam, as you've talked about, the, are they going to betray us in some way once we've laid ourselves bare in front of them? And then there's that question of what do we do with that? Right. Well, stay with us because when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Adam Young. We'll be right back. Here at LTN, we're all about helping people build better relationships. And we've actually created a brand new way to do that with our Say More conversation cards. Say More is a deck of 100 questions to kickstart engaging discussions. So there's silly things like, which famous cartoon character are you most like? 
And there's also serious things like, what has been your hardest goodbye in life? You can use our Say More cards with your family, your friends, on a date, at the office. My family and I have been using them at the dinner table, and I've learned things about my kids that I truly never knew before. To grab your own deck of Say More cards, go to lovethyneighborhood.org and click the store link at the top of the menu. And while you're there, grab a couple more decks. They make great gifts for Christmas or birthdays, and all proceeds go directly to support Love Thy Neighborhood. So go to lovethyneighborhood.org and click store and get ready to say more because better relationships are just a question away. Welcome back to the AnyCast, Jesse Eubanks. Lindsay Lewis. So we've been talking with Adam Young, who is a counselor, therapist, podcaster, all-around relational guru. Can we call him that? We'll call him <laughs> <Yes>. relational guru. <laughs> uh, so Adam, you know, in your life, you know, you've talked about, a lot of AIDS will use this language of the desire to be independent, not controlled. Um, you talked about a desire to not be betrayed. In what way... Has that driving force, that desire, in what way has it been helpful to you? And in what ways has it not been helpful to you? Well, I'm hung up on the word independent. I mean, I'm a deeply relational guy. So if for your listeners that know anything about attachment, like I'm ambivalently attached. And in attachment language, that means like we're really into interactive regulation, i.e. we like other nervous systems and limbic systems around us because it makes us feel more grounded and it makes us feel more alive. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that I disagree with the word independent, um, but I'm a highly, highly relational guy. Maybe a better word would be uh, to protect yourself. Okay. Maybe. Does yeah. that resonate more? Yeah, no, that that absolutely resonates. And I would say, again, not being an expert on the Enneagram, that when we have betrayal in our past, when we've been hurt, especially by people that we trusted, that we felt safe with, it is going to be instinctual to begin hypervigilantly protecting yourself from further injury and further harm. Now, I'm not saying that's godly, Uh, I'm not even saying it's wise. I'm just saying it's the way nervous systems operate. And so I have absolutely experienced that inclination inside to kind of watch out, self-protect, be careful, be cautious, particularly when it comes to relationships. Yeah, yeah. And so in what ways has that posture been helpful for you? And in what ways has that posture not been very helpful? Have there been moments in which you went, eh, you know, I instinctually took that posture and that did not pan out for everyone's benefit? Well, that's a tricky question. I mean, (laughs) it gets into the whole terrain of when you have trauma, which I do, sometimes your judgments are spot on Mm -hmm. and sometimes they are off. And so when I have protected myself Um, from a judgment of that person is not worthy of my heart. I'm really glad I did that. But there are plenty of times where my judgment's been off, where where somebody was not actually against me, right? Um, Somebody was not actually uh, going to betray me. 
And yet my, my, my nervous system was braced for the possibility or even the probability of that. And that's not a good thing because it's, it makes vulnerability very hard. And when there's no vulnerability, there can be no emotional connection. And when yeah. there's no emotional connection, there's no relationship. And so in that sense, there's a loneliness that comes from the self-protection. Mm. Yeah. One thing I'm curious about, I'm really glad that you've given your own input about the word independent because we actually, we have been throwing around lots of words because what we see with the Enneagram is that, you know, there might be this one word that resonates with a lot of people. And so we start using that word, but then there might be people of that type. You know, we all have this different mix and flavor to our personality that they're like, no, that word isn't it at all. So I feel like part of what we're constantly doing on this show is we're trying to expand the vocabulary to make it more clear for people to identify that relational style. Yeah, because yes. we want to find that we want to find the language that resonates with a person. Yes. And if we're using the wrong terms or they understand it in the wrong way or, you know, mm-hmm. and and so, yeah, so I, I agree with Lindsay. Yeah. I'm really glad you're, you're pointing out that, okay, that doesn't resonate so much, but this mm-hmm. other one kind of hits. But l- let me say this, as a 35-year-old, that word would have resonated no problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could have talked to you for 10 or 15 minutes about that word. I've grown. Like Enneagram people, like you you grow, hopefully. That's the whole point, type, right? <laughs> right, that's the whole point. And yeah. when eights mature, it's not, I'm an independent guy in the sense that I have initiative, I'm a self-starter, you know, mm-hmm. I have my own business, I have my own podcast, I don't have a team of people. I do a lot of stuff on my own initiative and with my own drive. Mm-hmm. However, however, that's not my heart relationally. Like relationally, I'm a very interdependent guy. Mm. Like I need other people. Yeah. And I think that's so, so beautiful to underline for other eights because I am thinking of other eights in my life. We're, you know, in our 40s and you're seeing that shift of I think eights all have that desire, that deep desire for connection and relationship And that's why they have these tight inner circles. You betray them and you're out. But if you're out, if you're already on the outside of the wall, it looks just like independence. It looks like, you know, that they're just, yeah, off running their own race and they don't care if anyone else is necessarily even in the race. But that's not true. You know, we Mm. all perceive other relational styles through our own lens. So it's actually Mm -hmm. beautiful to hear you describing that. What does the transformation for eights look like in relationship. And I think we saw that with, I mean, with Dan Allender and some other eights that, that we have said, you know, in the background, like, oh, I wouldn't have guessed that they were eights. And it's mm-hmm. because you have um, kind of broken free from some of the restraints that we would normally put on that relational style through your own personal growth. Yes. yes. And spiritual growth, you know, all all the growths. <laughs> All the growths. Yeah. So one thing we're talking about, you know, as we talk about stirring up desire and hope is that desire has a way of always moving towards beauty. Yes. So can you talk about how you see your desires, you know, pulling you toward beauty? Sure. Uh, <laughs> when I look at what I want, what my desires are, 
the trajectory of all of them is towards more beauty, more flourishing, more goodness, more. Now, I'm not saying that every desire that I have is 100% pure. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that this is where Kurt Thompson's done some really good work. You said you've had him on the podcast. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. He, He's done some really good work around the intersection of desire and beauty. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the reality is, is that if you look at, you know, listeners, look at, just think about the desires of your heart, all right? They are all a mix of dignity and depravity. Both, both. Mm. That's just what it means to be a human being. But for many, many people, they look at some of their desires, especially sexual desires, and they think that's bad, that's depravity. Oh, let's talk about that for a minute. I mean, I don't, it's not just with desires. In every interaction, i.e. behavior, there is a mix of dignity and depravity. Um, you know, the person who at, in absolute exasperation throws a plate across the room and it shatters. Now, I'm not saying that violence is good. That's the depravity part. But let's look at the story and we will find dignity in that rage. Mm. And the same is true with sexual desires. Um, so if you go into your desires, you will find an ache, a longing for beauty for goodness, for godliness. It's always there. Mm. It's fascinating, though, because so often we, there's so much shame that gets wrapped up around That's right. our sexuality. I remember years ago, uh, my wife and I were doing um, therapy with a guy, and he talked about, he goes, just think about sex. He goes, you begin to, to talk in a very juvenile, almost infantile sort of language. He goes, there's a part of you that uh, that begins to tap into something that is very base in who we are, very you know deep. And uh, you know what what would you say to folks? You know when they begin. You know one of the things that that folks come up against is when I think of desire, some of my desires do begin to get into sexuality. Yeah. What what would you offer to folks as they begin to think about their desires as it relates to sexuality? I'd say good that you're doing that. Keep doing it. Like write out what you want sexually. Get to, you are a sexual being. Look, evangelical Christians especially, I don't know why this has happened. I'm not a historian, but oh my gosh, there is never, in my experience, there is no cohort of the population that is more obsessed and affected by sex than evangelical Christians. And I mean no cohort. I'm including... Other cohorts that, you know, evangelicals think, you know, whatever, BDSM community, for example. Look, there is more sexual energy, in my experience, in the evangelical communities than in those communities. The big reason for that is because it's all suppressed, okay? Yeah. (laughs) It's all pushed down. We're so scared of it. Mm-hmm. We're so afraid of it. Purity culture had a lot to do with that, but not that doesn't explain it fully. And so what I would say is like, look, you are a sexual being. That's God's fault. God made you a sexual being. That's part of what it means to be made in his image. You have to, you have to come to terms with that as a Christian. Your sexual desires are made in the image of God. I'm not saying they're uninfluenced by sin. Of course not. They're also sinful, but they are also godly. So, explore them. What do you really want? 
most of us get so freaked out by our sexual desires that we don't we don't lean into them. We don't look at them. We don't explore them. We don't find out the beauty that they may be pointing to. Most, in my opinion, that most sexual desire is about connection. Yeah. Yeah. It's about connection and it is about being who you are. In other words, wild. You, every human being is created to be wild. Jesus was wild, unfettered, free, wild. I don't know a better word for it than wild. Every, and sexuality is one place where a lot of people connect to their wildness. And, and, and that's sad because it, it wasn't the only place in other cultures mm-hmm. that, that people, you know, people don't dance. People don't, and when they dance, they dance at clubs. In most white cultures, there is no communal, ritualistic moving of bodies in wildness. That's not how God made us to be. We're not supposed to be in cubicles. We're not supposed to be inside (laughs) as as much as we are. And we sure as heck, I mean, office space, if you've seen that movie, that's flat land in America. Yeah, that's my greatest fear. You just described <laughs> office space is my is my greatest fear. Yeah. Yep. So you I mean you just talked about it, right? You talked about that at its heart that all these, you know, these sexual desires are ultimately about connection. Jesus tells us that uh all desire is ultimately relational and that uh he calls us to love God and love other people as we love ourselves. If we hold that up, Adam, as our chief desire, the desire to love God and love other people as we love ourselves. How does that chief desire reshape our other desires? I don't know that it, I don't know that it does. I think it's, I I think you might have it, if I'm understanding you like backwards, if you look at your desires, what they, what they actually are, I think what you'll find, what most people will find is that deep down what you long for has something to do with God and something to do with loving other people. Yeah. Yeah. I think that what I'm trying to get at is this idea that so often we fixate on singular desires. Mm -hmm. I want this thing or I want this experience or I want this. And we think we make it penultimate. We go like, this is it. This is this Uh is what my life is about. And Jesus comes along and goes, hey, all these lesser things are ultimately all pointing to this one true thing, yes, which is that yes. all of reality is about relationships. It's about the health of your relationships, yes, yes. the community in your relationships, the attunement in your relationships. It is all about that. And and I'm just asking the question of, if we hold on to that truth, that everything in life is relational, the purpose of life is relationships, how does that have the power to begin to reshape our understanding of our other desires? Well, I think, for example, like take your stereotypical 55 year old who is, you know, having a midlife crisis and goes, somebody told me once that when you turn 50, you lose your sex drive and you buy a Corvette if you have the money. And (laughs) I I just thought to myself that they told me that when I was 35. And that just seemed so depressing to me. And nobody wants a Corvette. Nobody wants a Ferrari 355. What they want, what they want is they want relationship and the Ferrari will help them get that. Can you unpack that just a little bit more? Well, just imagine having every sports car in the world, if cars is your thing, 
and driving and being alone on Greenland, driving them or alone on Oahu. You, it can be in a beautiful place, but with no human interaction, you, no matter where you drive, there are no people there to receive mm -hmm. you, to welcome mm -hmm. you, to interact with you. That's called solitary confinement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's what that's called. So all of our desires for things are really in service to relationship. Mm. Like what you were saying with sexuality and you can journal or, you know, just find some space to to think through, you know, Jesse always says, take something to the end of the track, you know, like yes. you're, you're going to just let it go all the way there, you know, yep. in your journal, <laughs> not in real, real life maybe, but same with the Ferrari is you're thinking, okay, what if I had the Ferrari? What if I had five Ferraris? Well, what is that bringing me? Like, is it adoration? Is it I can be in the club? Is it right. I can um, feel right. powerful again in a way yes. that I feel weakened, you know, at 55 yes. or something? Yes. Um, so we're asking ourselves and others to take whatever the desires they are, whether they're very small practical desires or, you know, these deeper existential desires and just go further, you know, like, what will that get you? What is it that you're really wanting? Pulling on those strings till they can get to those core desires because you might realize you can actually have it a lot easier than saving up for a Ferrari, right? Yeah, yes. Like, you might be able to find that connection, control, power, whatever it is, in a different and more healthy and cheaper way when, yes. you, when you're yes. 55. Yes, but this goes back to the Enneagram. This means growing in your type. Mm. So all of us have a deep desire to belong, to be welcomed by a community of people who will enjoy our gifting without envying us. Mm. That's the essence of welcome. Oh, we have gosh. a desire to belong to be welcomed by a community of people who will enjoy and bless our gifting without envying us. That's called the New Jerusalem. Mm. Now, so for all of, no matter what your Enneagram type is, there is a way to move towards that, that is healthy. And there are the all those nine unhealthy ways of trying to get that and never getting it. So yeah. I remember as a young 30-year-old, I was always envious of houses, like bigger houses, like people in my community that, that were able to, or BMWs, you know, like, <laughs> it's not like I'm a car enthusiast. I'm not. It was, a, it was about status for me. Mm -hmm. It was about belonging. Mm. Welcome. Yeah. That's so good. Well, now that we've dug around in the deep end of the <laughs> pool... Let's go figure out what Adam doesn't desire in life. So uh, so stay with us because when we come back, we'll be playing Your Worst Nightmare with Adam Young. We'll be right back. Here at LTN, we believe that in order to be loved, you must be known. And part of being known means understanding who you are, which is why we created Mapping Your Enneagram Story. Mapping Your Enneagram Story is a workbook to help you map your life story and understand who you are. Using the lens of the Enneagram, you'll explore how the story you've lived has made you into who you are and why Jesus is the key to living a better story. To get your own copy of Mapping Your Enneagram Story, just go to lovethatneighborhood.org and click the store link at the top of the menu. 
There you'll find Mapping Your Enneagram Story plus all our other Enneagram content. And all proceeds go directly to support Love Thy Neighborhood. So go to lovethyneighborhood.org and click store. Mapping Your Enneagram Story. Find the clarity you need to have meaningful, long-lasting relationships. Welcome back to the IndieCast, Jesse Eubanks. Lindsay Lewis. All right, and now it's time for Your Worst Nightmare. Okay, so Your Worst Nightmare is a real game. You can find it on Amazon or head over to PressmanToy.com. So, Adam, here's how the game works. Each round, there are four cards. I'm going to read to you what is on the cards, and then you're going to rank those four things by how afraid of them you are. Number one being the thing you are the most afraid of, down to number four being the thing you are the least afraid of. You're going to write your answers down at the same time. Lindsay's going to rank the order in which she believes that you are afraid of those things. For every one Lindsay gets right, meaning that she ranked it correctly, she gets a point. If she gets all four correct, she gets five points. We're going to play three rounds at the end of the game. If Lindsay has nine points or more, then she wins. But if she has less than nine points, you win. Are you both ready? Ready. Ready. Okay, here are your four nightmares. Sharks, dentists, public restrooms, and middle age. Sharks, dentists, public restrooms, and middle age. All right, I'm done. Okay. So, Adam, what's your worst nightmare? Sharks. Yes. Sharks. That was not what I would have guessed. Sharks. Okay. Uh, number two. Dentists. Mm, I had that as number three. Number three. Public restrooms. And number four. Middle age. You have you have <laughs> you have traversed the dangerous waters of middle age. He's no longer scared. I yeah. only got one. I got sharks. Sharks. Okay. All right. Round number two. Here we go. Turbulence. Going bald. Mimes. And driving in reverse. <laughs> what? Cards. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's see here. All right, Adam, what is your worst nightmare? Okay, this is the, this is my order is the exact same as the last one, which is the order that you're saying them in. Turbulence <laughs> is my my of those I four the scariest. Um okay, so uh so you're on a plane, turbulence happens, you're not yeah. feeling that. You, you yeah. yeah. I only got that ceiling when I got it. And you ever been on one of those planes yes. where turbulence is so bad and you're coming out of your seat? Yes. It is it petrifying. Is horrible. Okay, last round. Here we go. Drones. Toilet seats, politicians, and potluck dinners. Oh. Drones, <laughs> toilet seats, politicians, potluck dinners. Oh, this this is easier for me. Okay. You know, if you if you combined all four of these, you'd really have a party on your hands. All right. <laughs> done. Okay, okay. Lindsay, are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, Adam, what's your worst nightmare? Politicians. Yes. I got, I'm always good at the number one. Yeah, that is good. Yeah. Okay, number two. Potluck dinners, God have mercy on all of us. <laughs> number three. Toilet seats. Oh, and number four is drones. Okay, yeah. so Lindsay, how many points did you get? Four points. All right, so Adam, you, you just won your worst nightmare. We'll be sending you 
a lot of political ads. So thank you so much for uh, for playing. So uh, so listen, uh, we're gonna we're gonna blitz to these uh, eleven questions for you, and we're gonna try to get you out of here on time. So here's how this works. We've got 11 questions for you. You can answer with one word, one phrase, or one sentence. Number one, what is a place where you feel relaxed? The beach. Number two, what is a food that you hate? Mm, tomatoes, raw tomatoes. What stirs up joy? My children's smile. What stirs up sadness? Uh, my story. Mm. What is the last book you read and enjoyed? Uh, The Wild Edge of Sorrow by Francis Weller. What is the last book that you read and you did not enjoy? The Wild Edge of Sorrow by Francis Weller. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. If you could own an unusual pet, what would it be? Goodness gracious. Maybe a bird, some sort of exotic bird. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Uh, What is your coffee shop order? Ice vanilla latte, large. What is one personal vice you want to get rid of? Oh, I play this game on my iPhone called Ticket to Ride incessantly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is the one thing you would convince the world of if you could? Oh, my gosh. That kindness to your own heart and curiosity will bring you further in life than therapy. Mm. All right, last question. What is a current desire that you have? I would love to meet and have conversations with Dan Siegel. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, a good one. Yeah. Well, Adam, thank you so much for your time today and for just sharing your heart and your wisdom, your life experience. And uh, I think it's going to be such a gift to so many people. We're grateful mm-hmm. for your work um, and have really enjoyed this. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. This has been fun for me. If you've benefited at all from this podcast, please help us out by leaving a review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Your review will help other people discover our show. Special thanks to our guest today, Adam Young. You can learn more about Adam's work by visiting adamyoungcounseling.com. My wife and I actually went to his virtual sexual attachment workshop last year. It was mind-blowing. You can also check out his podcast, The Place We Find Ourselves, where he explores a variety of important topics at the intersection of relational health, Christian faith, and therapy. Again, you can check out all of this and more by visiting adamyoungcounseling.com. Also, special thanks to Crosspoint Ministry, who helped train us in the Enneagram and also about desire. You can check them out at crosspointministry.com. This show is brought to you by Love Thy Neighborhood. If you want a hands-on experience of missions in our modern times, come serve with Love Thy Neighborhood. We offer summer and year-long missions internships for young adults ages 18 to 30. Bring social change with the gospel by working with an innovative nonprofit and serving your urban neighbors. Experience community like never before as you live and do ministry with other Christian young adults. Grow in your faith by walking in the life and lifestyle of Jesus and being a part of a vibrant, healthy church. Apply now at lovethyneighborhood.org. This episode was written by Lindsay Lewis and myself. Anna Tran is our media director and producer. Music for today's episode comes from Lee Rosevere and Murphy DX. I'm Lindsay Lewis. And I'm Jesse Eubanks. Remember, the eye can see everything but itself. Find people to journey with you because you 
We're creative for community.